Okay, so uh, JC, I had a question for you, uh, reflecting on your um, uh, retail background. How was Black Friday for you? Oh, I'm glad you asked, my friend. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Black Friday was simultaneously the worst and best day of the year because um, I worked at Best Buy. Just, just before you say this, uh, just explain what it is because I didn't know for the longest time. It's like the, the biggest sale day of the year where, you know, shitty TVs are marked down from their already marked up percentages down to like what you should <laughs> actually be paying for them. And it drives people insane here. Like there'll be fist fights over Walmart TVs and stuff like that. And you'll be like see parents <laughs> trying to tear the last child's toy out of another parent's hand to get the best deal and it's it's wild um look up black friday videos on youtube uh dear listener if you haven't if you're not familiar with the the experience it's crazy um so i worked at best buy and uh you know i worked in the camera department um only supposed to be selling cameras really but during black friday it was kind of a free-for-all you were just expected to run around the store and and you know prevent fights and help people get the last (laughs) whatever you know hdmi cable or something like that um (laughs) So we we would have to stock the store um, the the night before, um, and you know it was like I, I worked a closing shift and then I'd st- I stayed until like midnight or something to help stock, um, and then I would come back. I have to come back the following morning because it was basically all hands on deck that day. Um, and so what I did to cope with this, I, I would always bring a, you know, a thermos to, to work, uh, for, to have water on the floor. Cause you can't really walk off the floor and get water very easily. Um, so for black Friday, what I do is I would instead fill that with a, like a, a giant vodka lemonade. So I would just be <laughs> drinking the entire day <laughs> and interacting with the worst human beings in the United States. Um, and people would be like, where are your TVs? I'm like, I don't know. F- look at the back of the store. You see the TVs back there? You fucking idiot. <laughs> they just like <laughs> scurry past me and go to the TVs. But sir, That's- there's only one TV here. Dude, I see three TVs. <laughs> sir, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, wait, fuck. There's six now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, but that was Black Friday. I mean, you'd have people, they'd come in, they'd r- literally run through the store. And you're like, man, take it easy. It's not a big deal. But yeah, it's it it turns people into animals um, here in the states, and it was, it was at the time terrible. Like you, I, you had to stay up late and stock the stuff that the people were gonna ransack the next day, and then you'd come back early and sell it to the <laughs> to the swine uh, who came to to suckle at the like teeth a village of, of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's I was amazed that that more things weren't broken and knocked over, but. Uh, <laughs> It's, it also has given me some very good memories. You know, my only like exposure to this is I remember when I first encountered this, whatever this is, the, the, this event. <laughs> um, and I remember I saw a YouTube video and it was it was like, uh, you know, the movie Night of the Living Dead? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It looks, it's like glass doors. Honestly. And there are people who are pushed yeah. up against the glass doors. And the poor worker who, they don't unlock the door by going behind it. Right. They, they're like, you know, stretching so that because they know the people will burst forward and they might get <laughs> fucking stampeded. That's how it worked. That's how it worked every time oh at, at Best Buy because you had the giant glass doors and people would, they'd queue up. They would get ready. They would be there like an hour early and there was a line out the parking lot and it was just it was insane so the poor sap who had to go and unlock the door and open it <laughs> got shoved past by mm. you know all these people oh, the, oh it was it was an experience and i i wish 
that you boys could be here and 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 stand and watch with me, and you know, from a safe distance, of course. <laughs> Maybe one day. The, the, the black <laughs> Maybe one the day. Black Friday zombie virus has spread to a lot of other segments of the world, so I had mm. the privilege of experiencing it a few times. But I went quite literally just to uh, to enjoy seeing orcs up close. Uh, and being at work <laughs> myself, literally just walking into a shop, not really sitting down because there's nowhere to sit down and looking 360 degrees around me, how uh, all these people starved for commodities are engaged in <laughs> basically the closest we get to be uh, in a f- to a physical fight without it being violent. And it's uh, it's all it's 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 kind of like it. It's almost like a symphony of just uh, absolute insanity developing around you and everybody's Mm. looking at you as if you're the stupid one for not engaging. To me, it's always very surprising how like the oldest marketing trick in the book, which is you take an item and you uh, pretend that you discounted it by quite literally just changing a number yeah. that you have on a sticker on said item and then also online, obviously, in the same sticker. Oh, and, the sticker's and it sells, not red. <laughs> and it sells so, so fucking hard. And, and like most people, I think, like consciously know it, but subconsciously can't handle yeah. not uh, diving in on the great fucking offer or whatever it might be. Yeah, and you know, pro tip for anybody who does go shopping on Black Friday, they're never marking down the actual quality products. Like, we would never mark down the nice um, 4K Samsung TVs and stuff like that. It was like the Vizios and the Best Buy brand, whatever they called it. Uh, what was it? Insignia, I think. Um, they'll mark down the junk that's, like, already not worth that much. So don't do not do it. Don't risk your life <laughs> for, for a garbage <laughs> TV. It's not worth it, friend. <laughs> Oh my god, living in the US must be so interesting. You go to school, you, you <laughs> yeah. risk your life. You go, you go shopping, you go shopping, you risk your life. You go to a hospital, you can't pay, you risk your life. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hard mode. Anyways. Best country I on earth, have a baby. PSA. Yeah, that, that is. Uh, I, have a, I have a PSA of sorts. Um, everybody, or at least every woman should know, or everybody with breasts at least, should know that um, they should uh, do regular palpations. They should check for lumps and stuff like that. If you don't know, then look up a a video or a guide. Uh, You should know how to do this. But PSA for the guys out there, palpate your nuts. (laughs) You should feel your testicles. (laughs) This is very weird and out of left field, but uh, a related patient story that I won't uh, mention today, maybe some other time, but basically, young guy, testicular cancer, that's all mm. you need to know. And I always forget that regular people don't know what their balls feel like. Regular guys don't know what their balls feel like. So usually you end up with two things. Either uh, some dude who has nothing wrong with him, he comes in, he's feeling on his balls, like, oh, there's something weird here. And it's just like his fucking epididymis or something yeah. that he's feeling. Or you get some guy who thinks that there's nothing wrong, and you come in and he has like basically a third testicle, Jesus. but it's a tumor. Oh, Jesus um, <laughs> and he's just like, oh, this, I thought this is normal. I thought this is how it's supposed to oh feel. <laughs> so, yeah, so please, uh, uh, everybody, palpate your nuts, make, get a feel for what it's supposed to be like, and just every once in a while, just check down there. Just see if everything is as it's supposed I, to be. I check all um, the time, like three, four times a day, good. you know, like seven, eight times a day. Yeah. I check my nuts all the fucking time. Baby. I get other people to go. check my nuts. It's, 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 
There you, you go. can make Perfect. it into a beautiful experience. <laughs> no, no joke. Like I think I was like 14, 15 when I first heard of that you can get tumor down there, and then I touched my nuts, like mm. really, really touched them, and I felt, you know, the the like layer around your nuts that like if you squeeze it, it kind of feels like you have something extra, yeah. but it's not. It's just your fucking layer or epidermis. Did you call it that, Hakim? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and epidermis. Okay, so I touched the epidermis, and I fucking scared my fucking ass off and immediately called one of yeah, my yeah. friends and he checked and he also had the epididididi and we were all screaming at each other oh my god we, the statistical chance what the fuck what statistical chance we didn't know what statistics were at age 15 we were like oh my god we both have fucking tumors let's go to the fucking doctor and shit and then we talked to our parents and they were like no man that's like that's your, just your balls bro uh, <laughs> oh my god that's just these nuts as we yeah, said <laughs> Everybody and welcome back to the D program. Uh, today we'll be discussing. This is kind of like a part. He two said that as if there's like a gun on his fucking forehead, <laughs> <laughs> which there is in the basement. JT has me in his in his. Uh, uh, what the fuck is it called? The the cellar. My yeah, dungeon. Yeah. Apparently they don't exist in fucking Texas. Yeah. 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 We got too much Wait, clay here. It's hard to dig. Oh, you guys don't have uh, basements? No, not they really. They don't even have cement on their walls. Like, what the fuck are we talking about? Oh, yeah. That's the weirdest <laughs> thing about fucking American. Why Why do you guys just have, like, drywall? This is, you know, I, I was li- listening to this thing, and it's a dude who was talking about how he was sleeping, and then he, like, moved his leg, and he, like, basically c- kicked a hole through his wall. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? We have, like, granite walls and shit here. Huh? And at first, I thought, like, goddamn, what, what do these Americans eat? But then I realized <laughs> that you guys build your fucking walls out of paper. Yeah. No wonder the tornadoes fucking ruin you it's cheaper i mean it's easy to mass produce oh, okay. and stuff like that it's you know uh wood framing and mm. brick on the exterior a lot and like some accent stone um yeah it's it's not ter- not terribly well constructed <laughs> yeah it doesn't sound like and people bitch about soviet production jesus christ yeah uh, you know say what you will a, a, a khrushchevka you won't be able to kick a fucking hole through the wall with your foot <laughs> we'll um, kick a wall through you but now in america it's built yeah. like that so that white people have what to punch through when they're angry well that's that it. is true <laughs> if, you, if they don't punch the walls we all know what they do so you know <laughs> The walls have been sacrificed oh, for a greater good. <laughs> Your culture is so interesting, Jason. Why do you Thank think Germans you. did World War II? All their buildings are made out of brick for thousands of years. Oh, fuck. There we go. Oh, man. What a anyway. rich tapestry. All right. Yes. Yeah, so back to the main topic. Today, we're going to be discussing somewhat of a uh, sequel or part two to the previous discussion on class. Today, we're going to go over uh, intersectionality and a little bit about la- labor aristocracy. Um, the main uh, topic or the main meat, which is as juicy as, as JT's mm-hmm. that we'll be uh, getting to, uh, is the intersectionality. Let's start with that. What does it mean for uh, what does intersectionality mean and Several addendums, because the liberals in the walls were very strong when I was writing the stupid <laughs> notes for this one, okay? Um, we, as Marxists, are materialists. What that means is that material reality is what determines social relations, okay? Um, 
Our analysis is fluid. It's not a vulgar materialism. It doesn't mean that we uh, only adhere to uh, the some sort of reduct, uh, reductionist uh, perspective that, oh, the material conditions of something are the sole determinants, but they are the major determinants. What, the, what do I mean by this? Um, class is something that is has material basis, and as a result, uh, it is centered within our analysis. But that doesn't mean we should over-prioritize it, and that's kind of the point of intersectionality. Um, there's two sides of this, and then I'm going to get into the meat of this. Uh, there's a lot of academic Marxists, especially if you read the recent literature about this, that they, they, they trend, uh, they have this trend of delinking class um, from the general analysis and focusing only on the intersections, only on race or sex or uh, sexual identification or other such things. Um, which is a sort of right-wing deviation, if we can even name it that way. Uh, and then you have these old-timey orthodox Marxists who are very class reductionists. They think that there's only class. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're gay. Uh, a proletariat is a proletariat. And then as a result, their kind of perspective and, and uh, uh, plan kind of emerges from there, which is a left deviation of sorts because that's also incorrect. Okay, uh, so to uh, define intersectionality a bit more, I'm going to give you the two sides of it, right? Um, there are those people, like aforementioned academic Marxists, who will usually treat every social factor as uh, um, distinct. Uh, everything is on its own, and you should take each thing uh, as it comes, not just as a part of a package, let's say. And then you have on the other side, people consider social totality, so race and gender and class, and then those subsections, if uh, immigrations or if they're immigrants or not, disability, colonialism or post-colonial history, and relations with that, uh, other vectors of social power, um, all of these things, generally, the social totality, are mutually reinforcing social phenomena. What does that mean? That means that uh, even though class is somewhat of the core, the soul, let's say, the flesh around it is your race, your gender, and all these other factors that form this complete totality that we can approach in our analysis. That's the point of intersectionality, to not just get bogged down in the uh, class aspect, but also not to go too deep into the tangents where then class doesn't matter anymore and we end up into a very uh, uh, into the crevice of just basically identity politics. Oh, you know, we need more black women as CEOs instead of focusing on both uh, the class aspect and the racial and gender and whatnot, mm. right? Yeah, uh, so what Hakim just uh, explained is uh, extremely important because nowadays people tend to throw shit at each other, considering each other either the left deviation or the right deviation and never really uh, believing that you can embrace intersectionality how it was originally intended to be embraced, uh, as Hakim said, as a totality. So be very concerned when uh, in a discussion with mostly usually very young or new uh, Marxists, mm. when they deviate either uh, very far to the left or to the right when it comes to intersectionalist uh, theory. Anybody listening to this that went through university and, for example, studied anything relevant to social sciences or even very specifically political science uh, w will realize that Hakim is 100% on the nose. I remember personally first interacting with this in my second year of poli-sci and writing an essay which is uh, very concentrated on the class analysis. I believe at that time it was weapon owner and the and the professor literally deducted grades from my from my 
paper mm-hmm. due to it concentrating exclusively on uh, on class and not on other aspects mm-hmm. which they believed were extremely relevant for said mm-hmm. situation and they would they mm-hmm. were most likely correct because back then you know everything evolved around classroom because I come from a relatively mono-ethnic part of the world where you know uh, other than <coughs> imperialism those sorts of topics never really interested me in my youth because I, you know I didn't get to interact with shit like that and probably a lot of people have similar experiences uh, so either they have hardcore experiences with uh, the social aspects of class analysis uh, race culture immigrant status imperialism etc etc so obviously it's absolutely natural and absolutely fine uh, for them to uh, you know uh, feel more intensely uh, when uh, talking about issues which relate to those things. But we always need to uh, remember the way the brilliant mind of Ben Shapiro says, <laughs> facts don't care about your feelings. So all of those things that you feel very intensely about are innately linked at its core, which we're going to go more, deep, deep, more deeply further on, to class distinction. And the opposite, now talking about me as a much younger uh, Marxist, if you happen to be the majority in a certain country and if you happen to not really interact with uh, uh, those uh, social aspects of uh, oppression uh, and only class oppression, it's normal for you to massively concentrate on, uh, on only that aspect. But that is why we have terms and that is why we have uh, theories such as, for example, in this case, intersectionality, which allow us to see further from the scope of our own personal experiences. So once you uh, don't even deep dive, I think from this episode, you will see that it's a relatively simple and very, very truthful analysis of, you know, the material reality that people uh, live through. When you when you when you embrace it, you will you will basically get to experience uh, life through uh, a lot of other uh, eyeballs, which uh, mm. the material reality in which you are in uh, doesn't allow for, and that is why it's extremely important. Because no matter which, be it class, which is at its core, or the twenty different things that uh, that are born out of class, uh, out of class struggle, no matter which one out of those impacts you, you need to realize that without genuinely solving quote-unquote solving you get what i mean uh, mm. all the rest you will never truly at the core address uh one of those 20 problems which are core to what you're pissed off about on a daily basis and that's why today's episode and in general intersectionality really really matters it gives you scope yeah. what and an intro proud important. of you both you both get a you both get an extra hour of daylight outside the dungeon today well done <laughs> thank you daddy thank you yeah you see, you see bob bob he, he's gonna let us out bob yeah yeah i'm gonna ride myself some horses i'm gonna ride some horses i'm gonna get we're gonna get an extra pop tart or whatever pop tart, pop tart. <laughs> oh my god we're gonna go see jenny is, is, jenny from the block i i love that this is your vision of the united states <laughs> i have been there and my vision is correct <laughs> okay. Uh, oh my god! I'm kidding. My image is potholes and people wearing the what's the, 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 the hat, the hat, the cowboy hat, the one with the bend in the middle, and yeah, everybody yeah. Oh, wears yeah. denim. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Honestly, I the, reason, yeah. the reason Hakim doesn't like cowboy hats is because he has that insane Iraqi hairstyle. You can put no fucking hat on top of it. So, so, so that's why he's like an anti hat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Oh, fuck. Oh, man. Oh, jeez. Anyways, yes. And uh, of course, uh, I, I also imagine JT in full denim wear. He, he, I imagine you with a denim cap, the denim shirt, and the denim pants. Denim pants, um, denim socks, denim underwear. Hell yeah. But but then uh, <laughs> yes, when he wants go. to go sexy time, he puts the leather on the crotch and the leather on the nips. <laughs> there we and go. And like a leather strip Mm-mm. on the cowboy hat. And then we yeah, ride, yeah. baby. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. it's, get, it's, get, it's getting too hot Dude, in here. We I, need to cool I, down. All right. Back, back, back on track. Back, back. <laughs> Um, sorry, just because there's so much bullshit to get through. <laughs> we'll meet. We'll meet throughout. Don't worry. Um, yeah, uh, the, oh, I completely agree. Beautifully put with what you got Nick said, and I, I just to tie it up into one sentence. The reason that we put the emphasis on this social totality again, as I mentioned, race, class, gender, and all the subsections, of course. Um, together and part of the analysis is because if you only focus on one, then you'll diminish your level of understanding of social power and oppression. Right? How? What does this mean? I'll, I'll give an example. The, for example, black working class in the United States versus the white working class in the United States have fundamentally different experiences as a result of this racial vector or intersection. Right? This is where the nuance comes in. A class reductionist will tend to think about this as, oh yeah, well both of them are proletarian. So uh, as a result of this, they're the fundamental axiom that they um, that their oppression is based off of is the fact that they have to sell their labor power, and as a result, you know, the the, the conditions that they have to endure are similar. Uh, or at least the levels of oppression that they have to endure are similar. But in reality, we know that blacks have higher unemployment rates. Blacks are discriminated against more at work. Blacks have uh, are the first to be fired and uh, the last to be hired. Um, blacks have uh, lower for at equal levels of education and at equal levels of experience, they get paid less than a white coworker. Um, and if you go back to other settler colonial states like South Africa, for example, the difference was even more stark. And the fundamental uh, difference between these two populations, despite the fact that they're both proletarian and even even though sometimes both of them are unionized, um, the black worker is usually uh, at the more um, brutal end of capitalist oppression, let's say. Um, not always 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the time. And that's where one of the axioms comes in, or one of the intersections, excuse me. Uh, do you guys have anything to say about that? No, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, like There have been plenty of studies here in the United States where um, people will do a social experiment. Where they'll take the same... Um, resume, and they'll put a you know quote unquote white sounding name and a quote unquote black sounding name, and submit them. And every single time, the black sounding name is offered in an interview way way less of the time. It's it's a stark difference. And you know this is a society where people think, oh, you know we've we've fixed racism, et cetera, et cetera. That's definitely not the case. And so even no matter. What your level of education, what your level of experience, if you are not a, say, like a white male, then you're going to have degrees of extra difficulty that are not placed on the, you know, the, what a lot of Americans see as the default human being in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's absolutely um, needs to be taken into account. Hmm. Yes, very, very uh, well put. Um, there's one aspect that I would also like to comment on that kind of relates to this because um, mo- a lot of modern, I don't want to call it even Marxist, uh, it's usually post-left nonsense. By the way, the vast majority, I dare say all post-left stuff is garbage. You should never waste your fucking time on it. It's absolute garbage. 
One thing that's recently popped up from this fucking garbage heap is the concept of the precariat. Um, guy standing was one of the people who popularized these. And the idea being... Uh, the, the <laughs> Sorry, idea, uh, I always laugh at the name what? Guy Standing because I just imagine just some dude just <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> yeah, he should, should have kept no, standing you... instead of talking, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Continue, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, honestly, Jesus Christ. I'll yeah. laugh quietly. No, you're completely right. <laughs> it's completely fine. But yeah, the concept of the precariat is this, right? That the current um, system, the, the class system in the United States, for example, has become more stratified. Um, and uh, as a result of the precariousness of employment that the vast majority of American quote-unquote working class people experience, that this undermines the importance or the relevance of the traditional concept of the working class. Um, but the thing is that he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> the reason that he's a fucking <laughs> idiot is because the working class and their politics and influence has always been precarious and it's always been at the mercy of the capitalist state or the capitalist class as a whole um, to say that all of a sudden just because um, employment subjectively, by the way, if you look at the, uh, the actual evidence, this is not really that uh, shown, um, unless you're looking s specifically at um, highly educated jobs amongst uh, white middle class and upper middle class technical specialists or uh, people in university and stuff like that. Outside of these realms, um, work has been as precarious as it is as precarious as it's always been for the most part. Uh, in fact, in some aspects, it's become less precarious and other aspects have become more. My point being, though, if you do want to lay blame on one aspect or another within the United States, then it's the decline of unionism and the decline of union membership, which has kind of eroded these protections that American workers used to have. And that's one of the reasons that uh, the subjective increase uh, in precarity uh, has been noticed. But that doesn't negate the fact that you're still working class. It doesn't bring absolutely anything new to the table when it comes to the discussion of class relation. It just says that in this particular moment in time, uh, one thing that the proletariat has not experienced as much before is being experienced now more. Uh, and, but how does that change class relations? You cannot, uh, class relations are based on uh, what one class does to another and what mm. one class gets from the other class. But rates of employment, yeah, and their or relations, how easy it is to get a job or not get a job, or the fear of losing a job, that does not change the said original yeah. relations. So it's, exactly it's not right. even post left. Yeah. It's 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 okay. You can add it as another aspect, but not it's not different. It mm. doesn't overlap. It doesn't yeah, change. it's not a materialist analysis. Exactly right. This is based in absolute nonsense. That is wishy-washy, and you can't base your analysis, a scientific analysis of this uh, based on these kind of uh, criteria. And that's why he's a fucking idiot. So uh, that's just something because on occasion when you see uh, in a lot of discussion of intersectionality you enter into quote-unquote post-left spaces where you start seeing other rhetoric that's all fucking stupid um and this is one of the issues where liberals kind of appropriate marxist terminology and then just run with it and then make yeah mm. so uh, this is just one one important thing to notice one aspect of inter intersectionality that is uh, important is um it's kind of a counterweight to the uh, eurocentrism uh, that is present within Marxism. I dare say even like to this day, it's still present. But back in the day, it was a lot more. Uh, I'll give uh, several examples and then we can just have a bit of a discussion about it. Um, even to this day, you see this, but this was much more common 100 years ago, the idea that the revolution, the, 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 the centrality of industrialized Europe uh, and its importance for revolution, the idea that revolution can be in China or Russia or India or the Middle East or Latin America, this was completely alien to people. In fact, they, um, the, if you look at some of the declarations of the um, uh, Comintern, uh, the first uh, few declarations of the Comintern, you can see this two-line struggle. Uh, the 
Lenin's line, which was the correct line, um, that uh, there is a concept of labor aristocracy, that the revolution is, can erupt uh, outside of the uh, industrial core, uh, despite the fact that uh, his opinion earlier was different, but towards the latter end of his life, he, he started changing the opinion, like around 1923. Uh, and then you see this other line, which is propagated by, amongst other, Trotsky, who we should probably censor the name of, um, <laughs> <laughs> spit on the ground, Trotsky. <laughs> but uh, And the, the idea that uh, the revolution, no matter what happens outside, without the uh, victory of the revolution within uh, the industrialized uh, countries, then it's absolutely pointless to try to have socialism elsewhere. Um, so that's part of the Eurocentrism. Another aspect was um, this racism. That was partly Eurocentric, of course, within Western Communist parties. Uh, the French Communist Party is a perfect example of this. They didn't want to give independence to Algeria. They stuck with the, oh, Algeria is French bullshit. Um, they uh, didn't have good politics on the uh, French Indochina question. Um, Ho Chi Minh spent uh, a good deal of his time basically roasting and schooling um, uh, French Marxists on this question. And they never they never corrected their line, even into the late 60s. Um, they never corrected their line. That's why the French are, you know... Um, the French, <laughs> right? Um, and then you also have this racism that was ever present even within American unions, leftist American unions. Um, this has its own background. For example, a lot of time because the employment or the unemployment levels of black people in the United States have always been very high. Um, they would be used also frequently as strike breakers for when the white workers would uh, go on strike. Um, and as a result, this turned this the a lot of unemployed black people that would be basically lumber proletariat that would be called up to as, as temporary labor while white laborers or workers are, are striking. Um, this caused this tension uh, within the working class movement that all, all these blacks do is whenever they come, uh, they come just to uh, be, um, what is it called in English? A, a scab? Scabs, yeah. uh, the one who just like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They and they do this out of economic necessity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, of course, is a economic necessity. Otherwise, these people would be starving. Um, so, uh, just to kind of like lump this all together, the point of intersectionality is to break that this Eurocentrism, this racism that was in unions, this bullshit in other Western communist parties that at least back in the day, uh, and at least somewhat even to this day, um, the the to bring in these different perspectives and to deepen the analysis to understand that, hey, just because we're all proletarian doesn't mean we all have the same struggle one-to-one. -one. Uh, and I was just wondering about you guys. Maybe you've had personal experiences with this. or To me, it's extremely prevalent to this day, especially as uh, people who do our type of work online. Uh, I have noticed because of my interaction with uh, Western communists being oh, yes. uh, <laughs> the, the, the group which uh, I interact with the most because they happen to have the most time to be online and happen to have the most resources to be online and happen <laughs> to have a culture of internet consumption which is much more, much higher than in a developing world. Uh, so there is a sense of... Um, how, how do I put this? The only real revolution it needs to come from our parts of the world because mm. everything else is pretend. You know, we like to joke here on the deprogram that the US is the main game and everything else yeah, is a DLC. Yeah. The only time uh, in, in the eyes of these people and some of them with uh, well-meaning, uh, the only time when uh, Marxism can be perceived as a ideology which can cover the whole globe is after it was successful 
in our part of the world. This sort of idea that if we, the the, the, the genuine, uh, you know, full game experience, the genuinely civilized uh, nations embrace Marxism, eventually everyone else will embrace it. It's, it's kind of a leftover uh, thought that Europe originally was the one that spread civilization to everywhere else. So Europe was also uh, the one where the French Revolution happened and then it inspired national revolutions all over the world. Europe this, Europe that. So now Europe being extended to, I would even say, overshadowed by the U.S., the only way for the globe to truly become red is if we here are the ones painting the world red after our local revolution. Uh, I don't know if you guys have kind of felt this because it's more of a gut thing. I can't really bring up statistics that prove it. But uh, uh, the reason why it's so powerful and interesting is that it, it like these are communists, sometimes very well-read communists, that hold these uh, these just bygone attitudes and they don't even know they hold them because it's the, the Eurocentrism in them, the US centrism at this point uh, has been so strong from generation to generation that it's difficult to just uh, get rid of it only because you uh, got some class consciousness and intersectionality can really, for example, help finding some biases in you that you didn't even really know that you had. At least it helped me a lot. Yeah, there are some very patriarchal notions um, in uh, various sections of the left here in the United States, especially, I would say that, you know, I don't want to name any names, but certain um, figures kind of promote the idea that uh, look, all these other socialist experiments are, are doing it wrong. Like their version of Marxism is is incorrect. And uh, we have to mm. be the shining light that leads people into the real, you know, utopian socialism that we mm. can we can achieve only here in the United States because we're so enlightened, et cetera, et cetera. We're not we're not barbarians is the kind of implicit um, mm. thing that they're they're suggesting there. Um, and that's I think Thankfully, that doesn't resonate with the entire uh, Western left. I think more and more we are seeing an acknowledgement that places like Africa and Latin America have incredibly well-developed philosophy when it comes to um, developing their own forms of socialism and and following an, uh, a proper Marxist line, whereas a lot of uh, a lot of Western quote unquote leftists are are strictly revisionist, frankly. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And even the well-meaning people um, who still like to have this idea as, oh, everybody else is doing it right. And their perspective is, oh, we are a highly industrialized nation that once we, you know, like uh, we'll do X, Y, Z, we'll do one, two, three. Uh, and as a result, our so uh, socialism will be more full-bodied. It will be uh, deeper. We'll actually abolish the commodity form and we'll do X and Y <laughs> and, you know, all that bullshit, right? Um, which is very interesting. I'm glad that people have very, you know, vibrant imaginations, but um, yeah. Even if you're well-meaning, get it done, and then 
because there's all this criticism without substance, right? Um, they'll criticize mm-hmm. Vietnam or China or Cuba or something, um, which, by the way, is part of this Eurocentric aspect uh, heavily. Um, because if it was, if, if, for example, Norway next week was doing what China was doing or Cuba is doing, um, people would go insane, right? Especially all, all these yeah. people who are all of a sudden, oh, you know, yeah, they would, they would flip uh, overnight. Um, and it, it is really just a kind of a, a sad uh, remnant of this Eurocentric uh, trend. Uh, but again, like even those people who are truly well-meaning and truly um, uh, consistent in their approach to, uh, of analysis of those other countries, I think that at the end of the day, cool, you have your, uh, your um, criticisms, that's perfectly fine. But without substance, it doesn't really matter. If, you're not get, if you don't have an organization, if you're not developing towards anything, if you're not developing any sort of new theory or something, or most importantly, if you don't have any material organizations on the ground that are bringing some sort of change in your country, then I don't think you have the full right to just kind of sit on your ivory tower mm-hmm. uh, or in your armchair, either or, <laughs> and uh, just basically uh, d- give these uh, dictates down to uh, the lowly um, uh, browns or, or yellows or, or blacks or whatever else. Uh, about how they should should be doing uh, socialism. Yeah, it just it's, it strikes me as as very you know disingenuous when like places yeah. like the United States have never had their own socialist project. It's it's not it's mm. not been developed here. So the fact that we we have you know a bunch of seventeen year olds here telling places that are building socialism how to run their own countries is is a little silly. And there's a a, a way bigger trend. There's actually a book on on. Uh, Eurocentrism and Marxism. Um, uh, but this is a way longer discussion than we have time for right now, but this was just a, a small, um, like, you know, taste of that. Uh, but moving on um, to, to, again, the, the, the um, core of intersectionalism or intersectionality. Um, I, the, the example I gave before, the definition, uh, is the one that I think is the best way of understanding it, even though, like, some people don't like it, but I don't care. This is the one that I'm most comfortable with. And it's that exactly that class is it the kernel. It's the core component, the soul, quote unquote. Um, and around it, you have all these intersections of gender or race or everything else, right? Um, and that's quote unquote the flesh, right? But at the end of the day, you can't take out the, 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 the core and just have the rest and you can't just rip off the flesh and just have the core. Um, it is a, a, again, a full bodied, uh, substance of an entire, um, uh, entity that you need to approach in the analysis, right? Um, what's most important about this though, is these, um, the, these intersections, um, they are, um, they're firmly placed within class. Now, what do I mean by this? Um, the very fact that a woman or a black person or a gay person that is a capitalist uh, and their experience versus a, a working class woman or a working class black person or working class gay uh, person, how fundamentally different their experience is. And this goes back uh, even 100 and 150 years ago, right? Um, a, a example that came to mind right now, it didn't come to mind when I was writing this, but I was just thinking about it right now, is um, the, um, what's her name? Uh, the Kardashian person, trans person, what's uh, their name? Um, I have no idea. No clue. Bruce Jenner. Uh, Bruce oh, Jenner yeah. became Ke- Caitlyn Jenner. Sorry, sorry, I couldn't remember the name. Um, that is, and their experience, right? They continued mixing amongst their high circles uh, with all the wealth and everything that they have. And their experience was fundamentally that of a white person, uh, white trans person. Now, if you were to compare this to, for example, a black trans person, poor, black, like a working class uh black trans person 
their experience is so fundamentally different on so many differing levels, despite the fact that um, uh, they share the intersection together, right? Oh, they're both trans people. But the the, the, uh, substantial difference is, of course, relayed by their class, and then to a lesser extent also by other criteria. Of course, uh, Caitlyn Jenner is a white person, um, I believe at least, um, and uh, this hypothetical, uh, we're speaking of a black person. Um, And that's kind of the the core of the matter. even if you have people who uh, are um, parallel in their intersections, uh, you, it's two women or two gay people, for example, uh, the class component is what is the truly, um, uh, how do you say this in English? It is what defines the the, the um, core of their relations to their society at the end of the day, right? Because again, the material basis for it uh, in relation to the means of production is what's um, uh, determining all of this. Um, again, that doesn't change the fact that those other aspects, the intersections, are important to be and, and it's things we need to deal with uh, and to analyze and to contend with and to have conversations about. Um, but also, uh, just because to say, like for example, oh, the LGBT movement or a um, uh, African American movement um, or whatever else, other minority movements, um, to put them and paint them in one uh, banner. Uh, without the class component basically renders them uh, impotent. And the perfect example of this was the Black Lives Matter protests in which basically what started as somewhat of a working class movement was very quickly co-opted by, uh, well, you know exactly the, yeah. the types that co-opted it. And as a result, it ended up being basically dead in the water. You have the some people who would go on a bunch of talk shows and then would uh, mix with, I don't know, fucking celebrities and shit like that. And then in the end, nothing came of it. There's no new legislation. There's nothing that's been changed about the way uh, American police um, approach minorities. In fact, I believe they, they've been further demilitarized. The the, the um, defund police movement has went the exact opposite way. Um, the the prisons are still uh, filled to the brim, uh, highly overrepresented by uh, people of particular minorities, etc., etc. Um, and that's kind of the fundamental aspect of why class is important. Because otherwise, you end up with this. Yeah. Um, here's the one that I want to. Here's something that I'd like to kind of open up the floor to, right? And it's these intersections, for example, gender or race or whatever, can they sometimes sometimes supersede class? Can they become more important than the class background? And the 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 um, uh, example I thought of were, for example, Jews in Nazi Germany. It didn't really matter if you were a capitalist and wealthy Jew in Nazi Germany. You're still um, targeted. And uh, this is an interesting kind of like switcheroo mm-hmm. <laughs> on the entire um, aspect uh, or the entire idea. Uh, and if, if you really think deeply about it, there's an ironically a class component behind this. Uh, but I'm just wondering, what do you guys think? Uh, to me, it would again at the root core be about class. And Hakim kind of teased it. I mean, uh, fascism is a reply to capitalism in yeah. decline, where class collaboration and hierarchy become all in order for. Uh, the hierarchy to condense around one individual or one group of individuals which shall rule over everything, you need to find Patsy A, B, or C. In the case of uh, the Nazi version of fascism, uh, the main Patsy, not the only, but the main Patsy was the Jew. So therefore, you could say, as capitalism was crumbling, uh, the reply to capitalism's crumbling uh, was a class 
issue. Fascism was born. Fascism needed to find a uh, uh, an enemy to unite everyone against, which is not based on class, and therefore it found it in a social, cultural, and religious, uh, to an extent, uh, group during you know uh, the pogroms and afterwards uh, World War Two. So in 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 a very like elongated way, yes, it goes back to the root. Uh, cause of class but after the pogroms and the mass murders started uh then it was uh destruction and holocaust for the sake of holocaust right then the the being a jew became the main aspect and class was put uh pretty much forgotten when it comes to an interaction with a person of jewish heritage or what they defined as uh, jewish blood uh but it does not mean it did not stem from uh you know a, a class core if you want to call it that and i don't think that would be class reductionist to say but it uh, because you know the Jews specifically were targeted. But does it have a class core? Yes, absolutely, it does have a class core. You cannot have fascism without a class core. You really can't. Yeah. I was gonna say fuck hello when you talk dirty to me. <laughs> 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 Sorry, <laughs> yeah. but no, exactly. Those are my, exactly my thoughts. Be very, very beautifully put, uh, Yugopnik. Um And interestingly, also um, something to to kind of um, loop back around a, a bit uh, on an earlier point. Um, when we think about this um, uh, aspect of which uh, one of the intersections, they uh, kind of supersede class, um, in certain segments, they can. Um, and uh, another example that I thought of uh, earlier was, um, for example, in the United States, is the, the state of black workers are the last hired and the first fired. They have faced more unemployment rates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they, there's this tacit social acceptance within society of a higher black unemployment rate. Uh, especially when compared with um, uh, white people. Uh, and in this way, of course, there's this class background to this, like with everything, but it's fundamentally to me, it's interesting that when we think about, for example, unemployment, um, uh, when we think of black people and them being more unemployed, there's kind of a, a higher uh, tolerance um, uh, threshold of tolerance for how much that would be, even on like an official uh, level uh, within the United States, um, which is interesting to note. I was just wondering, JT, if you had any thoughts on that. Okay, so <laughs> this is... It's, 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 no, it's, it's an interesting one because if you take the kind of ruling class perspective on race in the United States... Um, this country was founded quite literally on the backs of uh, slave labor brought over um, from various parts of the world to be the workforce for building this this country. So in that sense, uh, black people have always been seen as a separate class unto themselves here in the United States. Um, so in that sense... I can certainly see that if it's if we look at it from that lens, then it's still very much a class thing. However, that is obviously you know not the case. Like black people uh, themselves do not constitute some separate class. It's just a a long-standing prejudice. So yeah, I could I would say that um, it it to an extent does uh, the identity of being black in the United States does supersede class to an extent. Uh, I wouldn't, I would put a big asterisk on that though. Um, I would not say that's every case. Yeah. 
No, no, I, I completely agree. It is. It, it ends up being falling to this um, layer of nuance uh, where the analysis has to get a lot deeper. But that's the point of intersectionality, because if you were working based off of solely a class reductionist perspective, um, then you wouldn't really be able to explain this. You can't explain this only right. on the basis of class. And that's the point uh, of the importance. Now, this I want us to lead into um, another thing that I want to open up to the floor for you guys to, to for all of us to discuss is with this knowing this should there be individual organizations for the various intersections should there be a, a black only workers organization should be there a woman only etc etc um and of course there's a bit of a the socialist history of this but we can get into that afterwards what do you guys think i don't know i, I think it is important for these groups who who do experience marginalization based on their characteristics to have their own spaces where they can organize amongst themselves and feel safe I think that's incredibly important um, and to, to offer a, a place for people who share that same discrimination to come and feel included and, and not feel judged by, you know, outsiders. Um, that being said, it is intensely counterproductive if those groups uh, remain insular. It's, it's very mm -hmm. important to have a, an intersectional approach to organizing uh, among discriminated discriminated communities, because if hmm. you know if one group is is facing uh, a certain added pressure from the ruling class, for example, uh, the trans community right now is facing tremendous pressure in the United States. Um, if you have these other groups that are like, well, you know, I'm not I'm not trans. I don't. Uh, that doesn't really affect me. If there's no solidarity there then not only will the trans community suffer for a lack of support, but as soon as the, you know, the eye of Sauron switches to whatever other <laughs> marginalized group, um, maybe the trans community will be like, well, they didn't support us during, during our uh, oppression. Why should we stick our necks out for them? We, need to, we just need to mm. reconsolidate, recuperate, and, and wait for the next time. So it, it is very important that these spaces exist. But there also has to be a a, a solidarity uh, between them, and class is the, is the thing that 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 links them a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Bravo. I was gonna say I uh, I like both your answers um, because your answer is very beautiful, JT, and you think you just said I I don't know, um, and I really like that as yeah. well because. That really is the, 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 the crux of the matter, even though everything you said, JT, I completely agree with. Um, it depends on the situation. There are certain situations where uh, united front organizations basically um, make more sense. Uh, and there are some cases where you just kind of individual um, organization also makes more sense. It really depends. But uh, exactly like you said, if there are various organizations that have different perspectives, then there needs to be the solidarity between them so that there can be, if need be, there can be a uh, united front approach that we can go entirely as one unit, despite the fact that we're made of uh, um, smaller individual uh, institutions or organizations. Um, if you look at the history of various um, uh, leftist movements, you'll see an interesting parallel. The radical traditions around the world, for if it was in China, if it was in, in, in Russia, if it was in Cuba and Vietnam, for minorities, for example, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, etc., um, and for women, 
they would have individual organizations that were usually, um, uh, I don't want to use the word subservient because that, that has a strange connotation, but I mean, uh, they were um, underneath a wider umbrella organization, basically. Um, for example, in the Soviet Union, you had different autonomous groupings um, that would then make up their own autonomous republics, but they had their, you know, uh, their politics were entirely uh, autonomous and uh, kind of sectioned off. They worked with their own stuff. And then they uh, collaborated with this umbrella organization at the higher levels of government. Um, this makes a lot of sense, but when you flip over to the U.S., you see the inverse trend of, for example, like Malcolm X's uh, uh, organizations, which all of them, aside from the very last one that he wanted to begin, but sadly was assassinated by the FBI, by the way, um, before he could really get it off the ground, uh, all of them were uh, black only. Um, uh, except for the very last one. If you look at the Black Panthers as well, um, they were a black-only organization. Uh, they had other um, parallel organizations, sister organizations that were for other people, but uh, the Black Panthers themselves were only for black people. Uh, and I understand this as well because, for example, if you look at uh, unions uh, back in the day, there were some unions that were started by black people for black people, and then white workers would come in, and then slowly but surely, the white workers would end up being the basically um, uh, majority of the leadership, uh, and as a result, they would kind of take over the organization despite the fact that it was started by uh, African Americans. That's not to say that, you know, the, the, we think of like racial domination in organizations as a thing, but also it is, you need to realize that these things at the end of the day matter, especially for the minority grouping, uh, grouping less so for the majority grouping. So the, all this comes into a big, you know, nuance ball of, well, we, it depends. Should we have individual intersectional organizations? It really does depend on the situation. Our history is filled with many uh, approaches. So uh, read. Yeah. And just to make <laughs> The, even more uh, the, the advice there to make this even um, more confusing uh we can't forget that there there's often a mixture of um interacting minority groupings so for example you might have someone who is both black and transgender and so that's there there there's another level of nuance that that goes even deeper than than what we've talked about here no, exactly right. And that's why it's important that all these things happen, not only in discussion with other comrades, but it should happen in discussion with people of the relevant groupings exactly. as well that we're yes. discussing. Um, so it is a dialogue in collaboration with rather than directives that are sent down to. Um, so that's another thing, an important aspect of the, you know, uh, Eurocentrism question as well, which was how a lot of organizations were organized uh, earlier. Um, now, kind of to get a bit closer to wrapping, uh, not wrapping up the episode, but wrapping up the, the, the intersectionality aspect, um, even if all of the intersections, racial, gender, etc., were eliminated and absolute complete equality in those terms was achieved, then at the very end, you'll have two people, regardless of their gender and race or whatever, everything has been made equal in this hypothetical, you'll have two people that have their surplus value extracted by a capitalist, which is the fundamental shortcoming of over-focusing on just the intersections, right? That's why class is a core component of this, because even if we achieve absolute equality in all other regards, then the lowest you're going to get to, the lowest common denominator, will be the proletarian aspect, which will still need to be contended with. Uh, and this kind of brings into the question, which was kind of fought with in the uh, Marxian uh, feminist movement or the proletarian feminist movement, which is when should we deal with these things? Should we deal with th these things, start dealing with them now immediately, or should we wait until after the revolution to start with this? And one of the aspects of the conversations at the time was, for example, the, the idea of women and, and, and uh, female oppression and all that kind of stuff. Um, should we start work even before the revolution? Or should we wait until the revolution is, is, is uh, victorious? And then uh, we start these, these, these uh, sort of things. Um, what do you guys think? 
it's uh, when when class is not a core uh, component of your analysis, uh, then other and I mean absolutely every single other uh, form of identity can be turned into a reactionary tool of uh, uh, which pushes us to not concentrate on said class. So when, when you do not have it as your main element of analysis, then the, I don't know, struggle of group A can be defined as, for example, why the fuck are we solving the shit for group C? We still haven't solved our own shit. Uh, and then group C is like, look at what they're talking about us. And group D is like, look at these motherfuckers fighting. Uh, then we should uh, try and solve our shit, etc., etc. And then you end up having a massively liberal approach towards uh, making the, the world uh, an inch better, uh, which at the end of the day, even if it does lead to some sort of uh, productive outcome will never lead to uh, uh, the genuine solvency of the main issue, which is which is class. And uh, ironically, the closer a particular uh, society gets to solving class issues and discussing class in general, the faster the status quo encourages the discussion of all other things except class very violently and usually leads to uh, to as I said previously, reactionary movements, etc., etc. But all of this does not mean that you should uh, say, okay, and until we get a Marxist revolution, we should shut the fuck up and not talk about all the other extremely important uh, facts of life which influence uh, you know the majority of the population. If we can address them at the moment, but it is very important to not allow it to be co-opted by capitalism so you know you have the black struggle and then it's co-opted by motherfuckers like i don't know jay-z and beyonce and you get uh, black capitalism as the answer to black struggle you know just mm. pick yourself up and you know you can then be the white man's boss it doesn't have to be yeah. the other way around uh you know the um, the literal centuries long lgbtq struggle for for independence for the right to marry for the right to have children etc etc was to an extent one in certain other countries, but then, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote class traitors inside of those movements decided that, okay, now when we want enough rights that are okay for us, we should start de-radicalizing the LGBTQ plus movement and we should, uh, you know, no longer, we should de-radicalize because it will get to a point at which uh, class is at an intersection with uh, sexual identity. And that is something that absolutely terrifies us. So uh, said very simply, yes, we should address everything that we can from all of those intersections when, uh, when we have the chance, when we have the material conditions to do so. But we need to be very, very careful because it's shown time and time again that be it the liberal or the, or the conservative or the fascist, they can eat up and integrate said social issues into their movement very, very easily. The only thing they cannot integrate is class. And that is another reason why it's so important. Because if 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 a if some if a movement is talking about class, you can know for sure that they're your ally. They're not just trying to create another consumer demographic for motherfucking capitalism. Exactly. That was no, that's gorgeous. Exactly. Another hour of sunlight. Mm -hmm. Oh thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, no, absolutely. I have. Right. I mean, I've got a. I've got a video on. Um, I've got a video on how capitalism uh, kind of defangs these these radical movements like Black Lives mm. Matter, and Excellent you got me. You're exactly correct. In in thank you in that assessment, and it's so yeah. We we do need to be aware that without that kind of class consciousness and solidarity, um, it is going to be difficult to prevent capital from subsuming these movements for radical change. But also, like Yugopnik said, we do need to be careful not to just, you know, kick the can down the road and say, oh, you know, eventually after the revolution, we'll, we'll address these problems. We need to, we need to kind of mm. walk and chew gum at the same time. Contend with these things. Especially yeah. because we, sorry, just literally 10 seconds. Uh, because, you know, I criticize this one side. The other one absolutely needs to be criticized again. People say, okay, post a class revolution, we're going to address all that shit. Trust me, my friend. In my part of the world, a lot of motherfucking bigotry stayed over after mm-hmm. we had class revolution. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it does, it's not a snow, it's snowball effect in both regards. If not everything is addressed, then you cannot actually have a ball that gets to roll and get bigger. It ends up having cuts, you know, it ends up being a box. Try pushing a snow box <laughs> down a fucking mountain, you'll see what you'll get. <laughs> Yeah, no, in a very funny way, you're completely right, yeah. And that's why the, the, the general approach, again, depends on the situation, just like Yopni said. Um, but uh, the groundwork, before the revolution, the groundwork can always be laid. Their theory can be written, you can do the analysis, you can have the stats, you can break down how things work, etc. But at the end of the day, the most uh, major change can happen when you have political power. Right. And that can happen maybe very rarely before the revolution, but usually happens after the revolution. So, again, it depends on the particular circumstance that we're talking about. There's some things that you don't need political power to sort out. But, for example, the systemic racism, um, institutionalized, excuse me, racism within the United States that keeps blacks systemically unemployed and uh, more incarcerated and more killed by police, etc., etc. This is something that you need political power to be able to deconstruct. This is not something that a bunch of blog posts and YouTube videos and protests will solve, sadly, um, even though it's been done for the past you know 100 years um that uh, these movements have tried to take off but yeah uh, i had a little bit also going about socialist failings that focus uh, despite focusing on class but uh you have kind of touched on it that there is a lot of bigotry despite the fact so we can skip this bit we're probably going to do more devoted episodes to faults of former socialisms um despite the one that we already did there's way more that we could cover so for right now i think we can skip it is that okay with you guys sure all right. Now I want to quote. Um, I want to deliver one quote from a book. Um, this is a book titled "Intersectional Class Struggle," um, which I skimmed before I, I prepared the before we prepared the notes for this uh, episode. Um, just before I do give the quote, though, um, I highly suggest you don't read this book. Don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that is decent in this book, I've extracted and already presented to you. All right. It is the. It is such. All right. It's the typical the fucking can't get published without syndrome. So basically, um, how much? Sorry, you sorry. Have how to, much? For, how much does it cost? Yeah. Ten bucks. I don't know. Twenty it's, bucks. It's probably ten bucks. Okay. I don't, I don't fucking so know. So he just saved I, you ten I, bucks. I Con- consider going for a Patreon. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm yeah, standing Jesus opening Christ. a beer and I ran back to my microphone just to deliver this line. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's yeah. how much I made hey, for the wrong. money, bro. <laughs> he's, he's not wrong. Anyways, the reason the reason that this book is such is such garbage is number one, they, the the uh, author has very weird ideas about Marx's conception of class. At one point, they consider them like a class uh, reductionist. At another point, they have this weird fucking I don't, esoteric interpretation of Marx's ideas. Very weird. Um, they don't mention Lenin once, which is arguably arguably the most he was the most important developer of Marxist class analysis and even intersectional, by the way. But instead, this stupid fucking author decides to reference Proudhon and Kropotkin and fucking Trotsky. Like, garbage, right? Um, they criticize irrelevantly Mao's China, like completely out of the blue. They're talking about something unrelated. Then they bring in Mao's China and unconstructively criticize it. Basically, the, the, the typical cringe fucking criticism you, you see. And funnily enough, if you on the back cover of the book, the, the author has used a, a cultural revolution icon. On the fucking cover. So, which is just like the stupidity. Uh, furthermore, um, they go on to publish, uh, to, to, excuse me, to um, praise the, the Arab Spring, which is again, fucking big brain rot moment, uh, in which this person seems to be under the delusion that there was working class organizations in Egypt and Tunisia and stuff <laughs> that led those, which was absolutely not true. There was no organization. That's where they rapidly devolved. Um, and then, and this is the fucking, the, the kicker, um, this dumb fuck called the Russian Revolution the Bolshevik counter-revolution. Oh. Fucking... <laughs> oh, my God. Dude, I, I actually, like, I, I was reading this book, and I was like, oh, yeah, this guy's an idiot, but he has, like, some, a few get good bits and pieces. And then the second I saw this, I, like, I had to stand up, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I get it, I get it. I, you can't get published without writing this shit. I understand, right? Even in leftist, um, even in leftist uh, publishers, you can't get published without writing stupid shit like this. But you could, like, you know, ease up on it a bit because when you write Bolshevik counter-revolution I completely know what kind of person you are uh, an idiot <laughs> but uh, anyways uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the quote now um, but the reminder don't buy this book um Therefore, we argue that the class divide is, in part, enforced and constructed by factors of race and gender. The structure of capital needs to create profit by exploiting unwaged labor, often that of women, which undermines women's social standing in other spheres. Similarly, racial capitalism enforces strict racial divides in the working class, forcing black workers and workers of color into secondary job markets and, seg and segregate the social positions and rewarding white people with a psychological wage, quote-unquote, a position of social privilege that hinders class solidarity. And so, too, with queer workers, immigrant workers, and el the elderly or young, and on and on. These types of working uh, experiences and social positions, based on wage, property, race, gender, and sexuality, are class. This diver diversity of experience in, capital in capitalism defines class. That's the um, general uh, quote. Um, there's a few things that's problematic with the way this person's formulated it but the general gist of the intersectional aspect I think is delivered very nicely in this in this uh, paragraph so now I think we can close off this topic of intersectionality we have just but barely scratched the surface um, there's a lot more we could discuss but I think now we can just have a very quick discussion of um, labor aristocracy um, or the concept thereof because this is something we're going to make a way bigger devoted episode to later down the line and we're also going to probably try to do episodes with some guests mm, exactly um, Zach Co yeah, Zach Cope is definitely number one on that list. Uh, I would <laughs> the things I would uh, I would do to that man if I would meet him. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so that will happen one day. But now, labor aristocracy. Uh, are you guys comfortable with this? Uh, with moving on now? Sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, I um, I'm gonna hit you with another quote. This is a quote from Zach Cope, um, the aforementioned Giga Chad, um, from his book *The Wealth of Some Nations*, which the, the wealth of some nations, which I highly recommend you guys get. Um, so I'm gonna re read the quote because this is kind of the the labor the 
best labor aristocracy definition that uh, I liked, uh, to put it that way. Uh, the labor aristocracy refers to that group of wage earners whose relatively high wages, regular employment, decent working conditions, realistic prospects for career advancement, and or cordial relations with supervisors and managers sets their living standards far above the mass of proletarians. In political terms, the labor aristocracy spurns labor internationalism in favor of seeking rapprochement with the political and economic institutions of imperialism. Even where economic crisis sometimes impels the labor aristocracy to repudiate this, sometimes tacit, sometimes overt, class compa uh, compact with employers and the government, uh, it does not acknowledge its material and political debt to the exploited workers of the colonial and semi-colonial countries. Instead, the labor aristocracy prefers to focus on national, quote-unquote, democratic redistribution of value obtained by means of imperialism, including, especially, uh, colonialism, unequal exchange, and capital export to low-wage countries. So, real social democracy, democracy hours. <laughs> this is why I love this quote, and this is why I love this man. Let's break down what he said. Basically, the concept of labor aristocracy is there are certain stratums of the working class, particularly in the Western imperial uh, core, um, even though the imperial core isn't only in the West, but uh, just for ease of the definition, um, that have a relationship with the ruling class that is uh, has shifted their um, class interests closer to the interests of their own national working class, uh, ruling class, excuse me. And as, as a result of this, um, they uh, when there is working class, class struggle within these countries, it's less along the lines of international solidarity and we need to, you know, decouple from these systems of imperialism, these um, systems of basically cheap labor abroad and using third world countries or imperial periphery countries solely for um, uh, low uh, cost commodities and raw materials and whatnot and agricultural labor. Uh, instead, we should have this kind of um, cooperative uh, development with them where, you know, our industrialized country should help them industrialize their own uh, countries and in return there's you know this mutually beneficial relationship instead of all this um when there is a working class struggle within these um countries that have labor aristocracies it's fundamentally shifted to hey we want a bigger piece of the imperialist pie we want more um uh, basically d exactly d uh, as, as Jacob said national democratic redistribution um of the, the the that that is produced by imperialism and they of course usually don't uh think of or consider or even uh, acknowledge the effort um uh, or or the debt that they have to the exploitative workers of these colonial semi-colonial these imper imperial periphery countries the, the, the concept is actually very broad. There's various authors that have discussed this. There's uh, Emmanuel Argiri or Argiri Emmanuel. I've seen it written both ways. I don't know which one's his fucking first name. Um, <laughs> Zach Cope, um, Lenin, uh, Hobson, Samir Amin. They all have a general concept of labor aristocracy. They f uh, differ f uh, slightly in the definitions, like the, the way they define it. Some of them um, at certain times have defined almost the entire working classes of the uh, imperial uh, per, uh, core, excuse me, as being a, a labor aristocracy uh, that have fundamentally shifted um, interests, that they are not aligned with the global um, proletariat. Uh, others don't think like this. It's very complicated, but... Um, the point of the, or the reason that I'm, I'm, I'm even mentioning the fact that there's so many different authors that have discussed this is because some people, uh, usually post-left garbage, uh, but also uh, some Marxists, they are um, part, usually Marxists of the imperial core, funnily enough, will disagree and be like, oh, this is just something new that they've come up with, which it, which it isn't. This is something as old as Marxism itself. The first formulation of this began with Marx, Engels, and Lenin, um, and uh, the... the uh, to bring in the Lenin, the Leninist aspect, because it's the most important one, okay? Uh, one of these, 
or to quote him basically uh, loosely to define what he what he believed is that the consequences one of the most important consequences of imperialism when it first took off was that it fundamentally shifted or impacted these class structures of imperialist countries at this time this meant france this meant germany this meant england etc um and uh, in that basically these benefits of imperialism as previously mentioned um rather than being restricted only to the ruling classes of these countries uh, are instead spread amongst these uh, other classes within these uh, societies these imperialist societies which include the working class um and as a result uh, would result in basically uh, them shifting their allegiances somewhat. Um, and to quote, to, to, to give you just one quote from Lenin, I'm sorry, this is a quote every fucking episode, <laughs> but um, in um, something that Lenin said in Imperialism and the Split in, in, in Socialism, uh, which by the way is a great read, he says, Why does England's monopoly explain the temporary victory of opportunism in England? Um, this opportunism being, meaning that the, the break with uh, proletarian internationalism being pro-empire um, uh, and pro-war uh, in the UK or in England particularly. He says, because monopoly yields super profits, the capitalists can devote a part and not a, swama, uh, and not a small one at that of these super profits to bribe their own workers to create something like an alliance between the workers of the given nation and the capitalists against the other nation. This is something that Lenin has written more than 100 years ago. Um, Another place also, uh, this is in the uh, preliminary draft uh, thesis on the agrarian question, Lenin says, The industrial workers cannot accomplish their epoch-making mission of emancipating mankind from the yoke of capital and from wars if they confine themselves to their narrow craft or trade interests, and smugly restrict themselves to attaining an improvement in their own conditions, which may sometimes be tolerable in the petty bourgeois sense. This is exactly what happens to the labor aristocracy, quote-unquote, of many advanced countries, who constitute the core of the so-called socialist parties of the Second International, which by my god does that slap the way he words things are so beautiful um this is the uh, fundamental core of the uh, of the point um and this is only as deep as we're getting today because if we were to get any deeper this episode is going to go on for like fucking four hours um there are certain sections of the uh, working classes within the imperial core that are labor aristocrats how big is this section what are the relations to the working class movements abroad and what are the current um uh, what are the current um, goals of the working class movement? Um, is there even a possibility for uh, unity within the proletarian movement? Um, how do strategies differ uh, in the political core and political, uh, the economic core, excuse me, in the uh, economic periphery, etc., etc.? These are uh, questions that go way deeper, way beyond uh, the scope of this uh, this episode today. Um, but fundamentally, I'll give you just my very quick idea on the political approach because that's the only thing that really matters aside from all the other stuff, which is just basically reading theory. Um, I've said this previously on episodes here and on uh, the videos I make. I think that the um, political approach within the imperial core should be, of course, to start organizations, to agitate, uh, uh, educate, organize, to increase the drive for unionization, etc. But the fundamental thing is to resist imperialism at all costs, to, uh, to start anti-war organizations, to resist imperialism, and to support third world or imperial periphery movements. Because this will, in turn, strengthen those imperial periphery movements so that they can have revolutions on their own. Once they do end up being successful, they can break the um, uh, value chains, they can break uh, the, the, the links of imperialism, they can reduce the, the, the um, dependence of the imperial periphery on the imperial core, number one. And number two, they will uh, increase the dependence of the imperial core on itself. And as a result, with less imperialist profit, meaning that the, cap the capitalist classes of these imperialist core countries will have to kind of turn inwards 
uh, and this will increase class struggle within these uh, imperial court countries, which will then change the conditions and allow for revolution that way. Because otherwise, as it currently stands, it's far less likely that will happen in, for example, Canada or Norway or, I don't know, fucking Germany than it would in the Philippines or in Peru or in uh, some uh, uh, other countries, likewise. Um, so that's just generally my... my, my uh, uh, point uh, and I have some book recommendations at the end of this. But do you guys have anything to 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 say? <laughs> I, mean, I I agree with you completely. I I just don't think there should be a sense of uh, intense class antagonism between mm -hmm. uh, the working classes of the developing world and what we could define as the labor aristocracy. For one very simple reason, even if you find yourself listening to this or reading, uh, as find yourself as someone who could materially be placed in the position of the labor aristocracy you need to remember uh, everything that uh, Hakim just quoted from Lenin and that is that the material conditions in your country have been created due to uh, outwards imperialism by said state that you happen to live in so to an extent you are a consequence of the system in which you're operating in and you should not apply liberal morality to now starting to feel bad about yourself as if you're a capitalist, etc., etc., but not only from, like, stupid uh, moralistic reasons. Uh, we talked about this, like, 700 times on this podcast, but, uh, ca uh, like, the capitalist class has a... Um, tendency to self-cannibalize and uh, not even self-cannibalize but cannibalize all other classes which do not necessarily fit into the proletariat so the second as Hakim beautifully put uh, the second the imperial core can no longer extract uh, wealth out of the developing world uh, some of the first motherfuckers that are going to go uh, are people such as yourself so it, even even from the most selfish uh, self-taking care of perspective um, in the long run if you have a fucking inch of a inch of a brain you should uh, identify closer with uh, the proletariat and with proletarian movements because you quite literally have a lot more to gain from them in the inevitable crumbling of capitalist states which are built on top of uh, on top of imperialism but that's again I'll say it again as Hakim said uh, this is like <laughs> insanely complicated and it could take like 17 <laughs> episodes just to discuss I just you know, wanted wanted to leave like the, like our audience uh, especially those who would for example maybe be defined as labor aristocratic with the notion that uh, the Marxist movement in general isn't kicking you out of the cool kids club okay yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> one, one could say that it's not even kicking potential capitalist class traitors out of the cool kids club it, it is a very open uh, uh, open-handed movement except for reactionaries obviously so uh, you know they don't feel like it's a direct attack at you we're just explaining how one thing one material thing causes another causes another causes another and then creates in this case uh, a, a potentially separate class which you happen to be in doesn't mean you're a bad motherfucker or that uh, you know you should uh, stop listening to this podcast and go listen to joe rogan instead you know <laughs> please don't please yeah. yeah um i've just been over here quietly thinking about the, the the thing you said hakeem about how there are some people with the take that more or less the entirety of the imperial core falls into the labor aristocracy category um, and I've seen that a, a couple people say that on Twitter as well, and I I don't I don't think I agree with that. 
Um, I understand that perspective uh, in that overall, the people of places like the United States have a, a, a fairly comfortable existence um, comparatively, um, based on the exploitation of, of the developing world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there are still places in the United States where there's no clean running water, where there's barely electricity, mm. you know, where there's no access to the internet, where you don't have paved roads, um, for like Appalachian, uh, mining towns or what used to be mining towns where a Walmart has come in and that's the only employer. And so everybody in the community sells their, their life to Walmart. Um, so there are, mm. Uh, you know, there's there's nuance in this conversation too, and it's it's something to consider. Um, yeah, yeah. Not not that I was uh, accusing anybody here of, of of thinking that, but just for you know people listening who might not be super familiar with the United States, there is a spectrum there of uh, relations to the means of production. There are definitely what we'd call labor aristocrats. Uh, in the U.S. and probably a larger percentage of the population here than in other places. But there are, are also, you know, run-of-the-mill proletarians, run-of-the-mill lumpen proles, stuff like that. So it's mm. it's definitely yeah. an interesting conversation and one that definitely requires a, a much longer episode. Exactly right. And of course, just to add, and this is the last thing I'll say and I'll give some book recommendations. Uh, the uh, last thing to add on to that very beautiful, um, beautifully put um, bit from JT is that uh, that's of course not forgetting all the other nationalities all the other nations that exist within the united states um the very mm-hmm. fact that when people usually bring up this concept of labor aristocracy they think of mostly uh you know white upper middle class people which is the wrong way of thinking about it um and to claim that the entire working class in the u.s is labor aristocratic um is yeah it rests on some strange presuppositions uh and particularly on the basis of this this aspect and that's why for example when you see the people on twitter they're kind of very black and white but when you read the the writings of the theoreticians on this stuff you see that um there is so much nuance in what they say um that even those who claim or like you you could make an argument that they think the vast majority of the working class they give many caveats so um it's it's uh, interesting to it's a very interesting discussion and the thing i really like about this is that this is a developing sphere of uh, Marxist theory, which is very exciting, I think. The Monthly Review School is the one that's kind of really up to date on this stuff. Uh, they publish lots of interesting work regarding this. I'm going to give a bunch of um, uh, recommendations. Uh, book recommendations doesn't mean you guys need to read all of these, but this is just for the people who are interested. The works that you have to absolutely read if you can pick something up are two bo- uh, two works, uh, both of them from Zach Cope, Z-A-K, Cope, um, C-O-P-E. Divide a World, Divide a Class is his first one, and his second one is The Wealth of Some Nations, which are both absolutely amazing uh, works. Um, there's a work by uh, John Smith, which is called Imperialism in the 21st Century, which is uh, also highly relevant. Um, Samir Amin, S-A-M-I-R, and Amin is A-M-I-N, and he has many books, uh, Law of uh, Worldwide Value and a bunch of other stuff, uh, which you can, uh, Unequal Development too, which you can look into, um, so just write his name. Um, uh, Emmanuel Argiri uh, is also very very good, but it's a bit kind of old now, but still, I think it's something you should give a look into. Uh, his name is Emmanuel, and his last or first name, I don't fucking know, is spelled A-R-G-H-I-R-I. Um, the one book I would recommend you read, because it's a very interesting political introduction, is uh, one he wrote in collaboration with 
the Communist Working Group titled Unequal Exchange and the Prospects of Socialism, uh, which you can find online. All of these you can find online if you want to. Um, there's other books that I could recommend, but that's enough for now. <laughs> um, you guys go have fun. This is your uh, um, uh, homework reading. Uh, I'm going to expect essays from everybody. Uh, I'm going to be grading them. <laughs> there is negative marking, so... <laughs> no, no, I'm teasing. Wow, um, reactionary school said, systems. Yeah, it's on ground. <laughs> with all that said, uh, I apologize for how heavy this episode was. It was a lot more theory-driven. Uh, uh, it was a lot more, um, uh, you know, it was a bit less funny. But hopefully you guys learned a lot. Hopefully you guys found this fun. Please let us know if you like this sort of stuff uh, or if it was way too much so we can scale it down in the future. Nah, shut the fuck um, up. You course. need to learn something here, not just talk about dicks. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But I'm trying to be nice, but I completely agree yes. with you, Gothnaker. Um, <laughs> that being said, this wouldn't have been possible at all with without our uh, amazing patrons. Um, so uh, thank you to all of you people. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Uh, for those of you guys who aren't patrons, I saved you the $10, so you should, uh, you know, send us the are. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. This has been the D Program. I'm Hakeem. I'm JT. And I'm you, <laughs> What was it that pause? <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck. <laughs>